6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. But as truly as I live, God continuing, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I want you to notice that he's pardoned him, but even though he's pardoned him, something else is coming. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So even though they're forgiven, they're not going to inherit what God had given to them. Here's a key verse. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So there's a two-part oath here that's critical to understanding Numbers 14. The first is that God, that God pardoned them according to Moses' petition. That can only mean that the people were forgiven of the iniquity of the sin that they had just committed. In the same breath, though, the Lord uttered the second part of His oath, denying them entrance into the land. So they're saved. They don't return to Egypt, but at the same time, they don't get the inheritance that would, would have been theirs had they had faith. Continuing Numbers 14. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit in him, hath followed me fully, and him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. The Malachites, the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. And tomorrow I'll turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear this, with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard, from, heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me, saying to them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. And doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, son of Jehunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I swear unto you. There's that key point. God swore an oath, which means he can't deviate from that oath. But then he continues, But your little ones, which he said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which ye searched the land, even forty days, that was how long the spies had to search it all out. Each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise." I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there shall they die. This two-part oath that he mentioned, as if to reinforce that, he says, as I live. The Lord repeats that three times, that their corpses shall fall in this wilderness. He reemphasizes, underscores that. And by the way, as you analyze this, you cannot 
equate their failure to enter Canaan uh, or, or their untimely death can be equated with damnation. Those are not the issues here. Some people uh, make a, a, a get into trouble trying to over over apply the uh, uh, possible analogies. Continuing Numbers 14, and the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. Apparently they died specifically early. It didn't take them 40 years to, 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 to uh, be taken out of the picture. And uh, so... But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, uh, they were of the men that went to search the land. They lived still. And Moses told, told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly, and they rose up early in the morning and got up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we, ha we be here, and we will go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. So they changed their mind. The people themselves repented of what they did. They repented, but it was too late. God did not repent because he swore an oath. So therefore they suffered defeat when they, they subsequently tried to enter the land on their own and they, AI, and they really, they were, they were in big trouble. So God is jealous about sharing his glory is the underscore here. And uh, those, to whom he uh, to, those to whom he shows great and mighty works and his glory take heed. Now if God held them accountable for his great deeds, boy, what position that, does that put us in? Because we have seen through the centuries even greater things than they were held accountable for. But it's interesting, the impossibility of repentance that it was going to give us trouble when we get to Hebrews chapter 6. The repentance that's at issue may be on God's part, not the people's part. We'll defer that until we get to chapter 6. But recognize that that's an overlooked possibility by many, many that review that passage. These are all believers. Their justification is not at issue. And 1 Corinthians 3 deals with that in effect. Judgment and not mercy will emanate from the bema seat of Christ and with a just recompense reward. Positive and negative is appropriate. And there's a whole study that undergirds that that you should take in on, on your own. Though. What really is going on in the judgment seat? Every one of us has an appointment. Every one of us are due for a final exam before the Lord himself. Getting back to Hebrews 3, which this was all an amplification of. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works 40 years, wherefore I was grieved for that generation, said they do always err in their heart, have not known my ways. For 40 years they have been rebellious against the Lord. Deuteronomy 9 that, uh, underscores this. They do always err in their heart, which is exactly what Moses documents in, in Deuteronomy 9 and elsewhere. Continuing in Hebrews, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. That is the heavy indictment that is nailed to the masthead here. So in the, in the historical sense, they've been wandering for 40 years on a detour. But God uh, took, took an oath. Over a, over a million people, we estimate, came out in the Exodus, out of Egypt. Only two inherited the land, and Moses wasn't one of them. Now I've said that many times, but my friend Gordon has corrected my arithmetic because my mathematics faulty because he pointed out that those that were under 20 uh, did inherit. So yes, they were, you know, 60 uh, years uh, on uh, going. So, so it's, uh, it wasn't just two that inherited the land. Those that were under 20 obviously survived 
to become mature adults entering the land. So my arithmetic is a little sloppy there. Anyway, moving on. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. That is the warning, that is the emphasis of the writer's focus on all of this. Unbelief is sin. And uh, to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Today, harden not your hearts. This is the admonition that David puts in Psalm 95. Does this mean that any of us could fall away? Are we vulnerable? And if so, to what? Important issues. Today. You know what tomorrow is? I love this. You know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow is the day when idle men work. Tomorrow is the day that fools repent. I love that. Never thought about it that way. What do I mean by that? Tomorrow is Satan's today. He doesn't care what good resolutions you make as long as they're scheduled for tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll work. Tomorrow I'll repent. Satan loves that. No, today is the point at issue. And uh, so today is the day of decision. That means right now. And uh, while you still have opportunity, because you know not what a day may bring forth. No, I love that. Tomorrow is the day when idle men work. That's, and tomorrow is the day that fools repent. Are you a fool? Are you idle? Or are you diligent and committed? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Partakers. This is a key word, you see. We have to, indeed, God rewards those that hold their confidence to the end. But we're not talking about justification. That's 100% done by Jesus Christ and 100% in the hands of our Father. And uh, I know in whom I believe that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. No, this is doing something else. Are you a partaker in Christ? You are if, big if, you hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The word there is metakoi, a partaker. And there's a key if here, a conditional if. Critical important, critically important. What is it that we must hold steadfast to the end? That's what you've got to decide as we go through the study. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's repeating again this quote from Psalm 95. What's the penalty for hardening your heart? It's seen in the example of the wilderness wanderings, a 40-year spiritual detour. How many of us can look at a portion of our lives, a couple of decades in my case, for example, where I, knew I was saved long ago, and I walked, um, I didn't turn my back on the Lord, but at the same time, I often have seen those, tw my, those 20 years were clouded by a, a certain awareness of liberalism, a certain lack of commitment. And I remember Walter Martin pointed out to me, Chuck, those are the years the locusts have eaten. I said, what does that mean? It's because God pr promises to give you those back, and indeed he has. And, and, uh, but uh, I look back decades of uh, where I could have been so much more productive, could have done so much more had I really uh, uh, followed through. At Kadesh Barnea, upon the report of the, uh, the uh, uh, committee that they sent out, they failed due to unbelief. The entire generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, passed away before the nation could enter the land. It says 40 years. That's the round numbers, of course. Um, this is intended to the Hebrew Christians. Their today was how long? It was between the preaching of Christ and Jerusalem's impending overthrow. 
the window that's operative here with this epistle is the window between the time they first heard the gospel and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where it was over. And uh, so that was nominally 40 years. And that's the same length of time that they sojourned in the wilderness. Actually, it was 38. If you look at Deuteronomy 2 verse 14, we'll discover that the precise period is actually 38 years. And uh, Jesus, when Jesus in Luke 21 speaks of this generation shall not pass away, he's warning them that when the city's surrounded, get out of town, don't let your friends get, come back. It's all in Luke 21. Again, from the time he told them that until the fall of Jerusalem under, under the Romans was 38 years. From 32 AD to 70 AD is, is 38 years. So it's interesting that that generational period that here is alluded to in the Hebrews is the same generational period that is applicable in Numbers 14. So the summary of rests here. We have the Hebrew, and uh, the, remember David, David's allusion to all of this in, in, in uh, Psalm 95 implies it was renewed then. But back in Kadesh Barnea, their today was 38 years. The Hebrew Christians reading this epistle, their today was from between 32 and 70 AD, 38 years. That's kind of fun. For some, when they had heard it, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Not all that came out of Egypt by they were a blood-redeemed people, but they lost their inheritance due to unbelief, is the whole point. And again, Moses wasn't one of them. Moses didn't get the inheritance. Does that mean he was, wasn't saved? No, because he shows up at the, uh, in Matthew 17 at the, at the Transfiguration and so forth. The people at large repented, and God forgave them. But the physical consequences of their sin had to be paid. Continuing, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was he not with them that had sinned because whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that, that, that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? That's the issue. Believing not and, and uh, uh, disobedience are equivalent terms. So that we see that they could not enter in because of their unbelief. And uh, the inheritance, their inheritance was conditional on what? On faithfulness. So was ours. Our inheritance, not our salvation, our inheritance is conditional. Notice that Israel did not lose their status as redeemed people. They did not go back to Egypt as back as you know as slaves again. No, they they were redeemed, and uh, we know that Moses was saved if for no other reason, many other reasons. But we see we see him visibly at, in Matthew seventeen and Luke nine. So. Uh, but they did lose the blessing of their inheritance in the promised land. Moses was de- after 40, uh, af- 120 years. 40 growing up in Egypt, 40 on the backside of the desert in Midian, and 40 in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, and he didn't get to enter in. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should come short of it. Is there a rest promised to you? What is that going to be? We'll get into that here in a minute. But you too can forfeit if you fall short. So we're now going to end at chapter 4, which is just a continuation of this whole discussion, a continuation of what's called the second warning here. Let us therefore, speaking of us, we the readers, and the writer puts himself in that same category with the readers, let us therefore fear, awe. And uh, this is first of many let us all through the book. And uh, so there is now a danger for these believers and here we speak of fear in the sense of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear in the sense of awe, not fear in the sense of terror, although that could be appropriate too. No, in the sense of awe. 
let us, uh, a promise being left us, of entering into his rest. What on earth is his rest as far as we're concerned? We're not worrying about entering Canaan, but what is the analogy? What is our rest involved? Well, the word rest is misleading. The dictionary gives you several different meanings. Its primary meaning is the cessation of movement, to come to rest. It implies motion that's now stopped, that something has stopped. Cessation of movement or action. Or the equivalent, cessation of labor. It's when you're through with your job, you rest. doesn't mean you're relaxing or sleeping. It means you're no longer hammering those nails or whatever. You've, you've come to the end of that task. It's a state of freedom from exertion in that sense. It can be freedom of anxiety. come to rest in a sense of freedom from anxiety, of emotional anxiety. It can also be, it can refer to the repose of sleep. Uh, that refreshes your body and so forth, or the repose of death. It sometimes uses that term when someone is, is, is uh, uh, been freed from earthly toil altogether. These are the different meanings. What's being used here? What's the rest being offered here? See, it's possible that the faith of these Jewish believers that this is written to is going to be tried because of the persecution that they're starting to undertake uh, at the time this, apostle, this epistle is being written. And uh, because of their present situation, they too can fall short just as the people at Kadesh Barnea fell short. They can fall short of what God wants them to attain in this life. And the promise of God's rest here is still available to them and us because it was never totally fulfilled. The promise of the rest in the Old Testament was unfulfilled and it was not withdrawn is the point. It's available to those who want it now. The entire purpose of this letter to the, uh, to the Hebrews is to get the Jewish believers to enter in to the fullness of what God has available to them. And the writer uses two different words for rest in this chapter. The primary one he uses is the word kataposis, which is used eight times in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, outside of the book of Hebrews, this word is used only once in the entire New Testament. That's in the book of Acts. But the word in all these uses means the cessation of activity. It means rest in the sense of ceasing. He wants you to cease your own works and, not, and rely only on his. The Septuagint includes notable passages where the word for rest, kataposis, in connection with Israel's possession of the land is clearly paralleled all through the Old Testament with a word, kleronomia, which is um, inheritance. The word for rest and inheritance in the Old Testament sense are virtually synonyms. So what they forfeited there was their inheritance of the land. See, for them, their rest was their inheritance, and Moses clearly shows that for Israel, their rest was the inheritance of the land, the land of Canaan. In the same way, the term rest was the writer's functional equivalent for a Christian's inheritance. Now, the Christians in promise isn't the land, it's something else, but whatever it is, it's something that has to be earned by faithfulness. The Christians uh, are heirs, is all through the uh, Scripture and all through the Epistle of Hebrews, that we're heirs too. It's affirmed before, back in chapter 1, and it's going to be reaffirmed again in chapter 6 and elsewhere. Moses showed that Israel's rest was their inheritance, and that same thing's true for you and I. Our rest is our inheritance. That begs the question, okay, what is our inheritance? And uh, see, these Jewish believers that this is written to had severed the relationship to their established systems 
by being baptized. When they, were, when they baptized them publicly, that was their way of closing the door on Judaism and committing themselves to the Lordship of Christ. That's what the baptism signified there, and that's going to be emphasized when we get to chapter 10. The renunciation of the established Judaism is what has incurred the wrath of their establishment community. And they all were undergoing intense persecution, and that's what prompts them to consider going back under that Judaism umbrella, and that's what is being denied them by the writer of the Hebrew uh, the epistle here. He points out, and they have not yet been martyred, but they will, and many will face that possibility. We're already ahead, probably had that experience. But if they're going to mingle with those that are observing established rituals in the temple, those persecuting them, the concept was that they might forget that they had previously renounced it by their baptism. So by pretending they're still in Judaism, they thought they could avoid. But that's in effect denying Christ. And that's a tough spot to realize that they're in. And there's analogies today. Even Paul, by the way, had observed Jewish rituals as memorials to Christ during his ministry. We see that in Acts and mentioned 1 Corinthians. So because of all this, many of these were not assembling with other believers but were trying to re-identify themselves with established Judaism in order to escape persecution. That's what the writer is arguing against. And just like their ancestors back at Kedosh Barnea, the recipients of this epistle had a promise of God of entering into His rest. This is not the rest of salvation in the sense of justification, because they're already recognized as believers. And it's also not the future millennial rest in which all persecution will cease. Therefore, we can conclude that the rest is that faith life rest which the believer enters by faith, in which he enjoys the inheritance that God gives to those that are faithful. That's re resting from our attempts and relying on the Holy Spirit's leading. So we have the Hebrew Christians here before. Prior to that, we have Psalm 95 and all alluding to the rest, what we call the Canaan rest. The offer is still open, and the today is, is as we've indicated. But unto us, for, in chapter 4, we're starting to make some progress in 4 now. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, these readers were without excuse because they had the gospel preached unto them. And again, he draws a parallel to Numbers 13 and 14. Twelve men came back from the promised land and gave a report. And the children of Israel made a wrong decision as a result of that. These Jewish believers had received a message from 12 apostles. Remember those 12, 12 apostles that are going to rule on 12 thrones over the 12 tribes. Remember, the, got to remember the Jewishness of all that. The emphasis here is on the necessity of faith to attain spiritual blessings from an inheritance. He continues, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they, shall, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now there's a change of term here. The quote here is, speaks of my rest. What rest is that? That's a creation rest, because God is speaking to the rest he took. When did God cease his works? Genesis 2. The creation was finished. God finished it. And he didn't, he didn't go to sleep, didn't, he didn't take a nap, no, he just stopped creating. That's where most of us, that's, uh, well, we, actually, uh, we get into the whole entropy laws, which really were introduced in response to Genesis 3. But he says, my rest, it is referring to God's creation rest. 
For we, we which have believed do enter into a rest. The statement that we who have believed uses the past tense and refers to the writer and the readers. They have already entered in to that, to that part of it. They do enter into a rest. The author then switches to present tense. We who do now enter into that rest, presently entering into that spiritual rest. So this paradigm, he's going to point out that the final facet of the rest, the final facet is yet future. There's part of this past, there's part of it present, there's part of the future. We're going to discover the, the, uh, that paradigm uh, going on again. The point is that because they have believed, they have begun to enter into his creation rest through the final facet, although the final facet is still yet future. These Jewish believers must continue to exercise faith to enjoy what this rest has to offer. The writer again points out that the wilderness generation did not enter the rest even though God had, pos had possessed it since the creation. God, through the psalmist David, announced the continued existence of the future rest. So he spoke in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise. See, if he was four, is pointing out, the, now introducing an, the analogy, not just back to the David, back to Genesis 2. He spake of a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, that God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. What is rest implying here? Ceasing from your works, okay? Works in the sense of where you're trying to earn your salvation. You can't do that. God has done it all. And that's really what we're talking about resting from. This is a reference to Genesis 2. The word here, by the way, is Shabbat, which means to cease, desist, or rest. So again, we have, the, we have these previous rests that we looked at so far. So far we we're alluding back to the Canaan rest, but now we've introduced a deeper allusion here that goes even before Kadesh Barnea, and that's Genesis 2. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day, and this was that God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if in this place now, if they shall enter into my rest. So he's used that word, if they. Again, there's an if, there's a condition on this particular rest. The authors just link God's Sabbath rest at the time of creation with a rest that the Israelites missed in the desert. Somehow, conceptually, they have something in common. That's what he's focusing on. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.